Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of If Women Were Meant to Fly, The Sky Would Be Pink, Coming Back Down to Earth. I'm Inid Otun. I'm mixing in a little childhood memory with the continuation of the next stage of my flying career. I returned from the US, albeit reluctantly, to Lagos to take up an offer of a first officer position with a new airline startup. I'm looking forward to a DC-8 experience. I left behind a life I had grown into, along with friendships I had never had before, to make good my career. remember standing at the window of our third floor flat in Tanuba Street, downtown Lagos, and staring at all the people below. I was four and a half years old, and it was July 1967. And as far as I can remember, something odd had happened in my world. My world was already turning out to be not so nice, but this was worse in a way. I'd heard my parents discussing something called War with Biafra, I didn't know what a Biafra was or how it would affect me or my friends or my family. I don't think about it too often, but when I do, I realise that I have lived through a civil war. I was confused, frightened and unsure of what would happen. The significance of it would not really sink in until many years later when I began my career as a first officer and I flew my scheduled routes between Lagos and Port Harcourt. The night stops in Port Harcourt lasted many hours and provided me with a fantastic opportunity for reading. In addition to my love of Russian classics, I began to read everything I could about the Nigerian Civil War. I read books by local as well as international authors, as I needed to get a balanced view of my country's history. I wanted to recall my own memories of the Civil War, because I think that it did have a strong impact on me as a child, but not one that I recognised until very much later. It was very interesting to observe the similarities to the way that I remembered my childhood trauma, not as a cohesive cognitive narrative, but a a jumbled recollection of confused, strong emotions, punctuated by the remembered sensations of pain, terror, confusion and exhaustion. When I later discovered that children who have survived abusive childhoods can suffer from PTSD in much the same way that a veteran might, It didn't surprise me that much. Anyway, perhaps this might explain the reason why the Civil War provided a vague, disturbing backdrop to our lives at that time, rather than dominating it. I do remember the blackout curtains that were hung alongside our regular curtains. They were to be drawn every evening at 6pm. Failure to do so could and would elicit heavy penalties. My father was practising as a doctor in those days and I would remember him being away for long periods during the war. 
but I had no idea what he was doing. I would later learn that he was working at the front as a surgeon. He would tell stories many years later of being attacked by children as young as 10 or 11 who were part of the Biafran army. His inability to process what he witnessed in those days was, I think, something that haunted him for a long, long time. Soldiers on the streets, shortage of goods, aircraft in the air, nightly television reports, secret police checks to make sure that citizens were not aiding and abetting the enemy were a normal occurrence in those years. But apart from the occasional incursion of aircraft and rumours of spies in the capital, we were lucky. Because I was so young, I guess I was shielded from the majority of unpleasantness of a war. It wasn't until I revisited the subject during those long layovers that I began to piece it all together. So, back to my life as a 24-year-old, newly qualified commercial pilot living in San Francisco. So, life was good, and life in the USA was even better. I had reached a really good place by now as I explored and enjoyed my job as a flight instructor. I was finally happy in myself and comfortable in my surroundings as my confidence and experience grew. I hadn't thought about it every waking moment, but soon I realised that I had to make a decision where to spend my future career. Do I go for the green card and stay in the US or do I return to Nigeria or maybe the UK to forge a career there? As I tossed the options around in my head, I was contacted by a friend of mine in Lagos. There was a new startup airline forming in Lagos and they were looking for young Nigerian pilots to come on board. Pardon the pun. It was an exciting opportunity and I liked the idea of the next step up. Perhaps a little more than a step, actually. The DC-8 four-engine jet. It was a little ironic because I'd always been a big fan of the Boeing 707. I preferred it immensely to the DC-8, but hey, at my level, beggars can't be choosers. And it would look great on the resume as well as in my logbook. It had been a very difficult decision to make and pretty much 99% of me thought I'd made a mistake. But I so wanted that recognition, which I thought would be given by getting my first job. I felt confused and overwhelmed a bit like the four-year-old me standing on that balcony as the Civil War began. Having spent so long in the US, I was naturally very uncertain of what I would find on my return to Lagos. The contacts that I needed were all arranged, and the fear gave way to excitement as I realised that I would most likely be the first Nigerian woman to fly a DC-8 as a first officer. But as the days and weeks passed, it became clear that this golden opportunity that I felt so lucky to have received was receding into the distance at a rate of knots. The concept was a good one, but the business planning was appalling as people climbed onto the bandwagon in the hope of making quick money with the emerging civil aviation boom. Short-term, quick-gain approaches were not going to work, and with this becoming more apparent, the whole project fell through, and I was left as I'd begun, with nothing. For someone so young, and who had worked thus far to build a new me, This was an incredible blow to my self-confidence. I could have, in hindsight, persevered by trying to pursue a different job in Lagos. I may have been successful, but the wind had gone out of my sails and it didn't take very much to make me feel like a failure. Seeing nothing on the horizon, I decided to return to the UK and was lucky when an, an old school best friend asked me to stay with her in North London for as long as I liked. 
My mum thought it would be good for me to take a break and investigate the industry over there. And so, with logbooks, licences and a sense of having failed at the first hurdle, I reluctantly boarded a plane to Heathrow. Once I'd settled into North London, it suddenly dawned on me that I had to make some sort of decision about my future. I liked to know what I was doing and being in this limbo was not a comfortable situation for me. I decided to make the most of this time. I had some money in the bank and I could re-establish my roots. And so I did. I spent the next six months visiting museums, galleries, air shows, pubs, music venues and making friends. Apart from spending time with friends, I went everywhere alone. I learned to like myself and kind of enjoyed the solitude. Not that everything was upbeat and wonderful. I had a lot of downtime where I sunk into self-pity and dejection. The thought of never being able to use the qualifications I had worked so hard to achieve started to make me feel disheartened and very depressed. There were also light-hearted moments as well, learning experiences which shaped me as a person, although as is so often the case, I didn't realise it at the time. My friend was short of cash and suggested that we pick up cash-in-hand jobs to make some extra money. I agreed, and so we trooped off to this back-alley recruitment office in the middle of London somewhere, basically a place that hired you cash-in-hand, no questions asked. Now, for someone who had followed all the rules, and I still do, this was difficult in itself, but my friend assured me it would be okay. We were assigned to a London hotel, which ironically mainly housed flight crew on their layovers in the city. Along with my friend, I was given a uniform, a dress, and an assigned senior housekeeper to teach me the ropes. Well, anyone who knows me knows full well that the uniform being a dress was enough to send me into a tailspin. To say dresses aren't my thing is a bit of an understatement. My partner once found an old photo of me wearing a flowing peasant skirt and she immediately asked me why I'd never told her I had a twin. I think it was probably the second time I'd ever worn one, so my mum had insisted on a photo. Yes, there is proof out there somewhere. Anyway, at the hotel, we were given approximately half an hour of training and then left to our assigned room tasks. Now, I'm no shirker. I put my back into any job I'm given, but I will admit I had no idea just how much work this entailed and how exhausting it was. The expectation that I would make the beds up to the hotel's exacting standards. Even as a boarding school kid with knowledge of hospital corners, I found this difficult. Then I had to hoover the carpets, clean the bathrooms, restock the tea and coffee trays. One down, 14 to go. All of this had to be achieved in a dizzying timescale. <laughs> I had to admit it, I'd met my match. I'm embarrassed to admit that the job ended the same day it started. Now, I have always had great respect for every type of work and the people who do it, for without them, we would not have the things we have or enjoy the things we do. I would never shy away from any job. I am very respectful of everyone I come into contact with that provides me with a service and I treat them accordingly. I have since spent hundreds of nights in hotels around the world through my flying career and as a result of my very brief work experience in one, I have even greater respect for the staff within them. I gave it my all for one day, but it was too much for me and the irony of it being a stopover for flight crew was really hard to stomach. Talk about rubbing salt into the wound. I felt like such a failure. Some months later, my friend and I decided to work on an art project together. She was actually a fine artist and, and I was great with a circular saw. Bear with me. 
She drew pictures on the wood. I cut them out and we stuck them back on as a sort of jigsaw work of art. We sold these at Camden Market and you may be surprised to hear we were quite successful. It was hard work, though, obtaining a pitch and we had to be up at the crack of dawn on those very, very cold winter mornings. In hindsight, all these experiences were eventually the catalyst that made me go out and get what I wanted. It wasn't easy and I couldn't see how going through this was going to end up defining me in the long run, but it did. Any listeners who are struggling to make their first splash in a new career, take heed and comfort from this. You never know what will happen if you stay positive and stick around. A short while later, I was to be given another chance to start my commercial career. So I returned to Lagos for the second time. This time, I was interviewed and assessed and given the opportunity to join a well-established company as a fixed-wing second officer. The first female co-pilot to be hired by them in Africa. Thank you for listening. As always, your reviews and comments are very much appreciated. Thank you to Lucy Ashby for the editing of this episode. If anyone has any questions or would like to discuss any of the issues I have mentioned in any of the episodes, I'd love to hear from you. In the next episode, I start work as a second officer at Bristow Helicopters in Lagos on the DHC-6 Twin Otter. I begin to realise that not everyone is always that enthused to have a woman up at the sharp end of an aircraft and I develop a strategy to deal with the distrust and suspicion of having a woman pilot in the frame in the 1980s. Goodbye.